0: Why, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of DemiMond Paranormal Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Tori, and tonight I have about three different segments that we're going to get into tonight. Um, our first segment is, as you may have known, it as the Emilyville Horror, or the Emilyville Case, or whatever you wanted to call it. I'm going to take you guys through the Lexus family as well as the DeFeo family as well. And we're going to just kind of examine Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s testimony in his court hearing or his trial as I should say. Now, before we get into it, I just want to welcome y'all to the second season of Demimond paranormal podcast it's been a real pleasure coming all this way with y'all we've gone so far already i'm really proud of myself i'm proud of everyone else for you know sticking through with it through sticking with me through all this you know challenging times Alright, let's get right into it. Also, we're going, we are going to be talking about the Anfield Poltergeist, which you guys might know as it was the Warren case file that was noted in the second Conjuring. So we're going to be talking about the true story behind that movie. That movie came out in 2016. It's already... F- four years old already, can you believe how fast time flies, like honestly, dang but anyway, yeah so basically we got three topics for tonight's episode, I think it will be really fun and informative you know, to share the information with y'all tonight also next week I think we're going to be doing another haunted country or haunted location location continent whatever you want to call it but also i think we're going to be i think i've already zeroed in on one country but i'm not gonna tell you guys where it is or where especially it's located until later in the episode or may i or i might just keep it a secret until next week but, without any further ado, let's get started into the first segment we have here, which is the Phil Horror, the true story. Okay guys, so our first stop in tonight's episode is the Amityville case not the Amityville horror not just yet um so I'm going to begin with the whole Ronald DeFeo Jr. and his family known as the the DeFeo family now the family consisted of a father who was Ronald DeFeo Sr. and he was 44 at the time of his death His mom was Louise DeFeo, who was only 42. His sister Dawn, who was 18. His other sister Allison, who was 13. John Matthew, his brother, who was 9. And Mark, his other brother, who was 12. And during all this, Ronald was the oldest of all children. He was 23. Now, the DeFeos had lived at 112 Ocean Avenue in a Dutch colonial home since 1965. But Ron DeFeo Jr. was known as Butch. That was a low nickname. And as some of you may know, that he did have a very volatile relationship, especially with his father. Um, Ron, Ronald Jr., was also known to be a drug user and he was apparently had was later in the episode we're going to get more in depth with this y'all but he was a drug user and he supposedly had antisocial personality disorder and he used lsd and heroin also during the point the point in these murders he was aware at some points of it that he what he was doing his actions were illegal but we'll get to that later. So right now I'm going to take you to the point of infamy right here. So we're just going to kind of act like a movie that begins at the end, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to take you guys to the point of the murders first, and then I'm going to take you a little trip through time of Ronald DeFeo Jr., And you guys can decide for yourselves whether you believe his story or not. That's my point exactly. But we're going to begin at 6.30 p.m. It's a Wednesday, November 13th, 1974. Where are we? Amityville, Long Island, New York. When 23-year-old Ron DeFeo ran into a local boar, that was called Henry's, and declared to a small group of people and friends that he believed his family was shot dead. The Suffolk police were called by a friend named, who was named Joe Yeswit, and he was one of Ron's friends. When the house was searched by police who found six of the family members shot dead in their beds. The victims were all sh- shot by a .35 caliber lever-action Marlin rifle. The murders happened approximately around 3 a.m. or 3.15 a.m. Both of his parents were shot twice. Both Ronald Sr. and Louise. I mean Lois, sorry. All of the rest of the victims, all of his brothers and sisters, were shot once, but his parents were shot twice. Although his mother and sister, his sister Allison, were supposedly awake during the murder. They were awake while they were being shot. And that was according to physics, physical evidence. And all the rest of the victims were found shot in their beds, laying face down. So, originally when questioned, Ronald Jr. had stated that he believed that a mob hitman named Louis Fellini was who killed his family. But when he was taken into custody for his own protection, his story began to fall apart. And later after serious inconsistencies with his story about how a mob man came a mob man came to kill his entire family while he was forced into another room. Well it came out that it wasn't true. And as for Louis Fellini, he had an alibi for that day. He wasn't even in town at the time of the murders. So with that whole story cracking under pressure, Ron was caught in a lie. And the next day, Ron had confessed to the murders. And I quote when I say, once I started, I couldn't stop. It all went so fast. And that's an end quote for him. He also admitted to have changed his clothes and he had bathed as well. He had also gotten rid of his bloody clothes. He threw them away, and he also—I think I read somewhere that he drove to a a car dealership where he worked and got rid of the evidence through a drainage pump or a a drainage hole or whatever you call those. He also he did this also with the gun that he used as well, and he did this y'all on while on the way to work. He also. Pretended to call to call home, and you know he was pretending to not know why his dad didn't come in for work the next morning because at that time Ron Jr. and Ron Senior worked together at a car dealership, and so you basically can piece again piece together what was happening. They worked together, and so Ron. Junior was like, oh, where's my dad? I wonder where he's at. Even though he really knew where they were at. So, but, he, you know, to cover his tracks, he was pretending to call home. And as we said before, he rushed into that bar. He was like, I think my parents were shot. But all, in all reality, he knew exactly what was going on. But anyway, before I get ahead of myself, Let's dive right into the background of Ron Jr., shall we? Was there something that was foreshadowing this incident years before it actually occurred? Well, let's find out, shall we? So, what I dug up about Ron DeFeo was that growing up, he had a pretty normal childhood. Though he was raised, you know, upper middle class... But his dad did rule the family with an iron fist. See, Ron Sr. was hot-tempered and frequently gone to fights with all different family members, including his wife, and especially Ron Jr., Ronald Jr., a.k.a. Butch. Also, Butch was bullied in school because of his body build, and they used to make fun out of him because he was bigger and maybe a little bit like heavier if you know what I'm talking about and eventually he lashed out and got in pretty violent ways towards his father and this happened quite a few times so what do they do to try to help their son I mean he was lashing out at his father he was lashing out at school and You know, hitting people, screaming, that type of thing. This violent, angry, rage-filled incidents would occur. So, what do they do? What do Butch's parents do to try to help their poor, troubled son? Well, they tried bringing him to a psychiatrist. But, you know, Butch was reluctant to go in pretty soon these psychiatrist visits stopped altogether so they tried give him incentives they bought him a $400, one hundred four hundred dollar a one thousand four hundred dollar speed boat but this made things even worse as he and as it was at this time that he began using lsd and heroin so in spite of his violent setbacks at school He was still being rewarded with his grandfather's car dealership. He was basically giving a position at car dealership at the age of 18. Now, this is at the time that he was a serious drug user with a violent side. But that wasn't all. He was also rewarded a a weekly allowance by his father, regardless of how he did at school or at work. He was also given a new car. And, and he was also given guns and alcohol and more money to get drugs. So that that brings us back to our next part. Conflicts and strange violent behavior. So As we know, there was some volatile behavior at home, including with Dad, obviously. But one occurrence was that when Butch's parents were fighting and Ronald Jr. attempted to shoot his own dad during a fight, but the gun had malfunctioned. Now, this was a 12-gauge shotgun that malfunctioned. And this left his father completely shocked. And if you think about it, it really was foreshadowing more violent occurrences in the future. And also, he had lashed out at a friend, even, during a hunting trip, completely unprovoked. And so, just before the infamous incident in 1974, we have an, occur- an incident of embezzlement, including his grandfather's car dealership in late October, 1974. Now, Ron Butch Jr. was supposed to deposit $20,000 to the bank, but instead of doing the right thing, he completely botches his own life, really. Instead of doing that, he decided to make a mock robbery with a friend. And this plan seemingly worked until the cops got involved and they decided to question the person who was handling the money, a.k.a. Ron, and also Ron's friend who was part of the scheme to get the $20,000 ...was promised a cut, but obviously this didn't work out quite planned because the cops got involved. And when the police questioned Butch, instead of remaining calm, like you would, well, like you're supposed to, even when you're calling a lie, he really shot himself in the foot by acting in a rage and screaming and yelling and not cooperating. Also... Even when he was questioned by his father, he acted basically the same way. But in this way, with his father, he didn't just fly into a rage and just be completely uncooperative. He tried, or he threatened, to kill his own dad. So that is just proof of guilt. And so... With that little piece of background of childhood and early life with the DeFeo's, I'm going to take y'all to the trial and conviction of Ronald DeFeo Jr. It happened October 14th, 1975. So, Ronald's defense lawyer... Or his defense attorney William Webber was tried to get him off on a insanity plea. and Ronald actually told the jurors that the reason that he had killed all six of his family members was because he heard voices telling them telling him to kill them voices in his head demonic voices And as for the defense side, the side that Ron was on, he had a psychiatrist, Daniel Schwartz. He had, he was supporting the claim. And by supporting the claim, I mean that Daniel, Dr. Daniel Schwartz believed that Ronald DeFeo Jr. was suffering from being neurotic and he was also suffering from um dissociative disorder personality I mean sorry dissociative disorder person. no I'm sorry I keep messing it up dissociative personality disorder dang oh my lord DDP oh my god I'm sorry y'all I didn't mean to keep messing that up Um, Also, according to the prosecution side, which also had a psychiatrist who was by the name of Dr. Harold Zolon, he stated that he believed that Ronald had suffered from antisocial personality. And this antisocial personality disorder would make it you know, make him aware of his actions and it would also be a leading contribution for the motivation of a self-centered attitude. It would also make him aware of his actions and fuel his motivation for a self, for someone who had a self- centered attitude, to put it more clearly. Now, the verdict. Now, the jurors, you know, they were pretty convinced by Dr. Harold Zolan, and they had agreements on the assessment, and on the 21st of November 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found Guilty. He was found guilty on all six charges. All six of them were second degree murder. He was given six consecutive life sentences. And his jail of prison was the Green Haven Correctional Facility. All, and I mean all, of his parole hearings have been denied. He's also... As what as I, what I've known, as I know of today, he is still alive, and he was the only living relative or immediate family member of the DeFeo's. Um, his family is buried at the St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale. And next, I'm going to take you guys to the Let's Family Experiences, shall we say? I'll see you there. It's time to get spooky. Okay, and welcome back to our se- well, welcome to our second segment for tonight's episode. And our second topic for tonight is the Lutz family in our haunted house. Alright, also, before we begin, I want to ask y'all, do you or do you not believe in the Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s testimony? I personally don't, but maybe you guys do. And... Maybe when I post this episode, you guys can, you know, I don't know, leave a message or leave a comment or whatever have you. giving your opinion, what do you think happened? And what are your explanations? I'd like to hear them. Alright, so, moving on. Same house, same location, different family, and different occurrences. This is the story of George and Kathy Lutz and their family, and what they experienced in living in a haunted house. So, the family moved in to the murder house in December of 1975. It was cheap, really cheap. It was only $80,000 for a 4,000 square foot house. It came complete with a boathouse, a waterfront access, a swimming pool, a heated swimming pool at that, a garage, and a full basement. But what's strange about this, I mean it sounds great doesn't it, but what is strange about this house is that the family only lived there for 28 days. That's right, not a year, not two months, not six months, not even give or take which month you're in, but I'm going to say it was somewhere in January. That's not even a month, I don't think. Maybe they left at the beginning. I don't know when exactly they left, but they didn't last very long. That's what I'm trying to say. So let's let's dive right into what... Really creep them out. It's time to get spooky y'all. So while living in this house. They experience green slime. Oozing. That's right. Oozing from the walls. And also demonic pigs. You guys heard me right. Not demonic horses. Not demonic people. Or shadow people. Or hat men. Or whatever you want to call it. But they experienced demonic pigs with glowing eyes. And these demonic pigs would be lurking around the house and on the grounds, everywhere. They also reported seeing eyes, this disembodied eyes just peering around from outside the house, peering inside the house. Also had, also Kathy had reported levitating off the bed. She levitated in thin air off of her bed. And her husband, George, had woken up every single night. That's right, every single night, y'all, at 3.15. Now, that is the supposedly time of the murders that Ronald DeFeo had killed his family members, 3.15 a.m. George's waking up every night at the same time. They also heard untraceable steps in and also they smelt pervasive odors or odors as well. So during the course of all these strange occurrences, they asked a priest to come over and bless their house. They figured, well, let's just get rid of the negative energy. This is, after all, a murder house. But when a priest came, and a ghostly hand had slapped the crap out of him, out of thin air, that's when they decided that, oh my lord, a ghost just slapped a priest. This is far too much for me to handle. But the ghost hand or the ghost didn't just slap him, he also told him to get out. The spectre all literally said get out to a priest. Now, with all of that spooky experiences and whatnot, we also have our fair share of skepticism and skeptics Well, skepticism and skeptics are the same thing, but in people who, you know, just automatically think everything's a hoax, if they can't explain it, or they don't know exactly what it's coming from, that it's, you know, expected to be a hoax, and maybe it's not. But I'm going to take you to a man named Jay Anson, and he wrote the book called The Amityville Horror, and 1977, which was based off of the occurrences at the Letz family home. But upon reading the book, we have a skeptic here who was by the name of Christopher Guantanamo. I mean, Christopher Quarantantino, who wasn't quite impressed by that book. He said it was overhyped and it it was absolute bullcrap. And he wasn't alone in this opinion. Also, if you remember from the trial case of Ronald DeFeo, William Weber, he also claimed that this book was a hoax and just a cash cow, basically. Also, the DeFeo, I mean, the Lutz family was also in a lot of debt. So, they were accused of making up stories in a former mortar house just to make money and hopefully they will land a movie deal. That's basically what people were saying. You know, they're like, oh, you know, they just want attention and basically just giving them a really hard time. But, although, all through this skepticism and scrutinization, one of the children. Confirmed the haunting activity, even all the way through adulthood. Now Correntino thought that the that he thought that the father George hyped the activity. He thought that he flirted with the supernatural, basically saying that he thought he was conjuring up spirits to, you know, prove that the house was haunted, even though originally it wasn't and nothing was there. But they want something to show other people. And according to William Weber, he thought that the Lutzes, they had conjured up these spirits in the story of the Amityville Horror just to, you know, Tell a spooky story over glasses of wine or bottles of wine. So basically they thought, oh well, he was saying that they, you know, they were brainstorming, they were, bran- they were brainstorming over wine. And they thought, hey, what a great idea. Let's tell a really scary, spooky ghost story in a murder house and land itself some big old cash cows. However... The Lettses sued they sued Weber for an invasion of privacy in which Weber then countersued for fraud and breached contact for breached contact and unfortunately Weber had won that lawsuit and the Lettses were nixed out by the judge. The Lettses Kathy and George had divorced in 1988. But some of them still remain true that these hauntings really did happen. Even to this day. But I'm going to let you guys decide for yourselves. Do you believe the story? Do you think it's far-fetched? Let me know down in the comments. And we'll have a little discussion about it. Honestly, for me, I'm not sure. I mean, the green... Ooh, the green slime that was oozing from the walls, I don't know about that part, but maybe, just maybe, I believe it's about the untraceable noises in the footsteps. And maybe even the demonic pigs, who knows. That'd be so super creepy though, would it not? But, as I said before, you guys decide for yourself. There are no wrong answers here. Okay, y'all, that does it for this section of the episode. I will see you in our next topic. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode as I enjoyed doing the research for you. Let me tell you, when I was writing down my notes for this episode, I thought, oh my lord, we've got a lot to cover. But to be honest, y'all, we're flying right through it. Flying colors. Um... So yeah, that's all I wanted to say for this ending. This ending, this conclusion, I should say. So I hope you guys join us for the Enfield Poltergeist, which is coming up right next after the intermission. See you there. It's time to get spooked. Mm Welcome back to our third and final topic or section, whatever you want to call it, for this episode tonight. Tonight we're going to fall all the way down the rabbit hole from New York to Enfield, London, England, located more specifically in Brunsdown London, England, On 284 Green Street or 284 Green Street now this story you may know as the story that was featured in the conjuring to the Anfield poltergeist or the Anfield haunting which is was a little mini series and I think it came out in 2015 I think it was a British TV show I don't think you can get it on like any American channel I think you had to be subscribed to some like something like Brit Box or something like that. But anyway, this story really kind of centers on a child, and this child's name was Janet Hudson, and she lived with her mother, Peggy Hudson. Hudson, sorry. So she lived there with her siblings. She had. A sister she had a sister named Margaret who was twelve and she had a brother named Johnny who was ten and her other brother who was Billy who was seven. Now this all began when suddenly one night Janet Hobson was sleeping in bed one night when she when her bed began to violently shake and she shared her room with her. 10-year-old brother, Johnny. So when Janet's bed started shaking violently, they ran out of the room, of course, because they were scared out of their wits to get their mother to come into the room. Before all this happened, though, none of them, none of the children at least, had any knowledge of the history of the house that they were living in. And they were renting this house, of course. And basically, from what I understand of it, they weren't super rich. They were really kind of a struggling family. It was a single-parent household. They just had their mom there. I think their dad may have run out on them or cheated on their mom or something like that. So basically, it was just a one-parent one household with a little bit of financial problems. And they were really great kids as well. So they weren't into, like, trickery or anything like that. At least not admittedly by Janet Hodgson herself in an older interview that I read about. Now, before we get into it too far, I I just want to mention something before we get into the actual story here. But according to Enfield Poltergeist Investigator, Guy Leon Playfair. He states that a malicious entity plagued the home of the Hodgson residents for 14 months. Janet was the main target for this entity. She would experience stuff and she would look on in terror as she f- levitated from her bed and as it began to shake as previously stated. She also has seen objects spontaneously catch into, you know, burst into flames. She's also seen furniture move by itself. Even more horrifyingly, another aspect of the entity haunting this house was of Bill Wilkins. And Bill Wilkins was thought to be the man who lived in the home before the Hodginsons. Um, he was an older man, he died in the home and he was He was determined to be the entity that that was using Janet as a puppet or a conduit to speak through her. And they determined this when they heard Janet start to speak in a low raspy voice that seemingly she could not make her own. And I want to point out that when this voice would come through Janet, her lips wouldn't move. So it would lead into people, some people, and we're going to get into this later in the segment. It it led some people to believe that she was doing some type of ventriloquism. But anyway, people were baffled by it, at least. Mr playfair and Mr. Morris Gross, who was a colleague of his, because the voice who had come through the little girl's mouth was deep and gravelly, and they believed that she couldn't have done this for a long time without causing damage to her voice. So, who was Morris Gross? He was an inventor for... The same occup the same place as Mister Guy Playerfield was, and this was known as the Psychical Research Soci- the Society for Psychical Research, as we're going to refer to it as the SPR. So they both came in, you know, to investigate the occurrences at the Hodginson home. So I'm going to take you guys a little back, a little bit back further before Morris Gross and the other guy came. Mr. Playfair. Peggy Hodginson called the police to her rented home in August of 1977, when she herself had witnessed furniture moving by themselves. The children have also noticed that they heard knocking on the walls, unexplained knocking on the walls. So, when the police were called to the home, a constable who was investigating the claims witnessed a chair wobble and slide without an explained without any explanation for it. She could not determine the cause of the movement. Other paranormal activity included loud noises and toys being thrown across the room. Also, overturned chairs and disembodied voices. And also, of course, levitating kids. And they were often seen by neighbors. The neighbors would walk by the windows of this house, and they would see either Margaret or Janet, Janet mostly, levitating a few feet in the air. And this was reported by at least more than, at least 30 people, maybe even more. And this occurred over 18 months. It happened for over 18 months. And some people even reported hearing a gruff voice, a gruff, disembodied voice, and more knocking noises. And Janet, as we said before, was seen talking in a low, raspy voice, which has been thought to be Bill Wilkins, who was determined by Morris Gross, the inventor, and Guy Playfair. Who was the writer for the PSR. Or the SPR. Sorry, I keep messing it up. So, according to Morris Gross, there was also a strange whistling and the sound of dogs barking. That's right, dogs barking. In the general vicinity of Janet. So, all this activity was just aimed at Janet or was in the same area as her. Wherever she was, trouble seemed to follow. Now, the strange whistling in the dogs barking was also reported by his colleague, Morris Gross's colleague, Guy Playfair as well. So there's two dudes saying that they've heard this strange and curious whistling. That's the first time I've ever heard about the whistling part or the dogs barking. Now, actually, you guys can find um, footage of Janet Hodgson's supposed voice change and disposition change on YouTube. I've tried listening to it, but I guess I'm more of a Freddy cat because, honestly, I had to shut it off, y'all. I was too spooked. I mean, I could g- probably get through it, but I don't know. I'm just kind of funny about listening to demonic people being recorded on tape recorders because um, it's just too much for me. But anyway, you know, during all this, during the investigations, guy Leon Playfair was generally, he, he you know, he generally believed the girls, you know, but he was always kind of skeptical. He always suspected them of playing tricks on them at certain parts. He believed that they were, you know, embellishing things and they were, you know, hyping things up and praying, pulling pranks and tricks. And that, that also went for Morris Gross as well, who believed them as well, to earn a point. But he also thought that the entities was the work of children. You know, not all, but some. And also, Gross himself had recorded Janet banging a broom on the ceiling. Now, he recorded her inadvertently, but he did catch evidence of her, you know, making some of the activity herself, some of the reported activity that was supposedly of the entity, but it was really just Janet banging a broom on the ceiling, or it was Janet hiding a tape recorder. And also, according to Guy Playfair, when Janet was when Janet was Bill, when she would have that personality change she would, she, and she would start talking with that low, graspy voice. When she was Bill, she would always change the subject. But also, when Janet was herself, she would also just randomly change the subject as well. So, basically, he thought that that was her maybe, just maybe, pulling another prank. Or it had some other reasonable explanation to it. Although both Janet and Margaret had admitted to some of the tricks... Although, Playfair and Gross compelled the girls to retract that statement and to not say anything just to avoid scrutiny from other scrutiny and also any harsh criticisms from the skeptics and the other investigators who were a little bit more, you know, they're a little, they weren't as willing to believe the girls as the first two guys were and I didn't want to you know face them one of the people that they didn't want to face harsh harsh accusations against was Anita Gregory who called the girl who called the footage that he, she had reviewed at the SRP she called it overrated in saying that the girl's behavior was suspicious and speculative she also accused them of staging incidents and she was a psychologist at that at the SPR another person who was skeptical of the Janet Hodgson entity was John Bel- Beloff He accused Janet of being a ventriloquist, or practicing ventriloquism, and he was the president of the SPR. Another skepticism person was Melbourne Christopher, who was an American magician. He had briefly investigated the home, and he did not find anything paranormal, and he chalked her antics up to be the work of a little girl. Who wants to start trouble? And she is very clever. However, the Warrens visited the home in 1978 and they were convinced that the house was haunted and or it had a supernatural explanation as to why Janet was being attacked. Another person of interest we have here is Ray Allen, who was a ventriloquist himself. And he actually believed that Janet was simply doing voice tricks. Now, Joe Nickel examined the investigations and scrutinized the investigators. He accused the girls of trickery and ventriloquism. He also attributed Gross's tape recorder recordings to be malfunctions. And he also accused Ed Warren, who was there, of hyping up hauntings and making up incidents. Basically saying he would do anything for a story to tell. and actual haunting would be a demonic infestation. Just anything to up his celebrity, if you will. And then we have Melvin Harris. He was another skeptic. So we have more skeptics than we we do have believers in this incident. He was responsible for the... You may have seen this photo of the Enfield poltergeist with Janet Hobson. It just looks like she's jumping and it's supposedly a picture of her levitating in thin air. I'm going to be honest, it looks like she's jumping, but... Some say that that's proof of her, you know, proof of her lying. Or some people say that, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe she really is levitating. But according to Melvin Harris, she was only jumping in the photograph. And he attributed the position of the jumping in the photo to be gymnastics, common gymnastics, which he remembered. Janet had excelled in, in school so another explanation in debunking of the Enfield poltergeist is the Bill Wilkins voice some say it's just a trick of the false, lo- the false vocal cords used by Janet and another attributing factor that they're saying it is leading to them to think that it's a hoax is that when she spoke she spoke like a child her vocabulary and her phraseology was that of a child and not of a 70 plus year old man who had been dead for a few years Oh, so what do you guys think of that do you believe it do you not believe it you think that there's some rational explanation or do you think it was maybe like how the movie says or maybe maybe like some other explanation that we've never heard before you guys let me know down in the comments as well i'm off i'm honestly on the edge i don't know if i believe that story or not I mean, certain parts of it make make me think that, oh, you know, maybe they really were being played by some type of entity, but other parts of it make me think, hmm. It's just, it is strange. Maybe something was making Janet do the trickery. Who knows, honestly, I have no clue. But I would like to know your guys' opinions about the subject or the story. And if you have a book or something, like one of the Warren case files or something like that, you guys let me know because I don't have a book on that subject or anything like that. So, I'm a little limited on that part, but, you know, it's always good to learn something new. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as I enjoyed doing the research and presenting it to y'all. Let's see, was there anything I wanted to add before I cut this segment off for right now? Any questions I had for y'all? So you, you guys do have two questions. Do you believe the Ronald DeFeo testimony? And do you believe the Enfield Poltergeist testimony? Was it the England's version of the Amityville Horror? Who knows? Or did you think both stories were completely far-fetched? I'd like to know. Alright, y'all. That does it for this segment, and I'll see you guys in the outro. Y'all, I'll see you guys next week for a new episode of Demi Mond Paranormal Podcast. It was a real pleasure doing it, doing this episode, this new episode with y'all tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to do a special shout out to my fans or my listeners, as I sh- as I should say, from all around the world, here in America and abroad. It's a real It's real flattering to know that people are listening to your podcast from all around the world. Mainly Europe, as I've seen. Um, Also, it is also flattering to see that people are coming in through the podcast to the actual group on Facebook.com. I think that's pretty sweet as well. And also, I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. I hope you don't think they're too boring or something or mashed together or something like that I hope they're informative and kind of fun and you know, spooky and you know, professional enough that you can actually take it seriously and not some childish bullcrap you might hear somewhere else, I don't know but you know it's really great doing these podcasts, I look forward to doing them And next week, I'm thinking probably next Friday, we're going to do our new episode. I think we're going to keep the topic a secret for y'all. And it really depends. We might do two, but I think we're just going to do one. We're just going to do one episode. Keep it simple. Keep it short. you oh, I think that's it for tonight um yeah I don't think I have any additional questions or anything you know for interactive audiences or anything like that um yeah you guys have a good night and I'll see you later I'll see you on the group I'll see you on here stay safe and be kind to each other and make good choices I don't know make something good for dinner Watch a good movie. Watch a spooky movie. And I'll see you guys soon. Ta-ta and sweet dreams. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Oh, also, just kind of a fun question. What are you looking forward to in the autumn? In the fall? And what's your favorite holiday? And if, if it's Halloween, what's your favorite aspect? Is it the decorating? Is it the candy? Or is it the spookiness? Leave a comment down below when I post this episode. And I'll see you guys soon. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Toodles.